Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing andrew holland's unique approach to investing helped him avoid losses in the great financial crisis and then later during the peak pandemic scare in march 2020 the key behind these big calls get a global perspective and when you don't know you exit he does not like to lose money He doubles down on this by having a hard stop loss in place. Not surprisingly, his active approach to investing, in contrast to buy and hold, has delivered over a long period of time. While active is not everyone's cup of tea, hearing Andrew will make you think about what you're missing. Listen in. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the uh, Mint Equity Master Investor Hour. Delighted to have you on this uh, podcast. Uh, I want to start off as as a beat at the investor are our regular readers know. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, going back all the way. You know where were you born, what environment you grew up, just to so that we can get to know Andrew Holland a little better than what otherwise we hear of him on on the telly once in a while. Okay, uh, Rahul. First of all, thank you uh, very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, and. Um, So I, I I'm originally from Manchester in England, um, and that's where I was born and brought up. Um, at that time, when growing up, you were I'm a big avid football supporter, so you were you had only two teams to choose from: Manchester United or Manchester City. Mm-hmm. For sure, chose Manchester United, although it doesn't seem that way at the moment. Sometimes, um, um, but uh, so I was, uh, you know, obviously, a, 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 you know. Keen footballer, but you know, obviously not to uh, not not to get myself into the into any kind of uh, football team. Uh, I wish I could, um, and and really spent all my formative years in Manchester. Um, and um, I, I think uh, the my first job um, was actually working for a newspaper called the Daily Mail. Oh wow! Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now. Well, they put me on the horse racing page. Right? <laughs> If they would have put me on the football page, I don't think I'd be speaking to, to you today, right? But horse racing was not one of my big, big interests. Um, so I, um, um, I, I, I left there after a while and started off in a in a local stockbroking, um, you know, client uh, retail. Um, company in in Manchester, uh, and you start off as an office junior, and you go around all the different departments, learning, you know, from operations. Those days, it was even when I came to India in '97, it was it was the old certificate and transfer um, until it got digitised. But um, so that's how I really started off in in, in investments and um, got uh, got myself kind of interested more in terms of. Um, Um, research um, and you know because we had a local client base you know northern client base we tended to 
research companies which were more north-based, um, you know, um, which um, you know the, the the investors would find you know, more interesting, more local, more everything. Yeah. So that's how I first started, and so that was. Hmm. If Go I may on. just come in, we'll talk about stocks later. Let's talk of horse racing. Mm. Uh, what was your beat? You were like, uh, you were, you're visiting the stud farm then figuring out who's going to be the next, what do you have in the UK? I don't know, whatever Derby or whatever it's called. Yeah. The, triple, the triple crown or double crown or whatever it's called. I, I, I wish it would have been that interesting. It was it was <laughs> it was more editing of the, you know, what you know when you get the, the list of the runners and the riders. Uh-huh. Um, it's really editing of that to make sure it's correct. Ah, okay. Yeah. If it would have been the football tables, I would have been. A... <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, this was when, uh, this is when you've done all your schooling, college, etc. Yeah, so this That's... was nineteen, gosh, seventy-seven. Wow. Yeah. The yeah. horses in nineteen seventy-seven, and then uh, from there you went to stockbroking, and this was. Did you like? Uh, did you do a postgrad? Did you do another degree or? You just no, no. I, I I just did business studies, and you started off as a junior then. I mean, uh, you know, it, it was really because it was a, a retail, you know, kind of a small retail broking uh, company. Then um, that that's mm-hmm. really where we were. Yeah, that that uh, if I remember well, those late seventies uh, were not the best time for stocks, right? Uh, no, because um, if you think about it, we'd probably just come out of the. Um, the oil crisis, right? That was still that was still uh, after the Volcker days of '74. So, uh, no, it wasn't a great time. It wasn't a great time in the UK. I mean, uh, we had coal strikes, we had everything. So, it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the easiest time to to move into into broking. But it was a very small. Um, when I say small, it must have been about less than fifty people uh, in the whole organisation. So, um, but it's mainly to retail clients or high net worth, some high net worth individuals as well. And that's where you got introduced to researching stocks? So there was kind of, you know, three or four areas you could kind of jump into. One was obviously operations, which was more the back office part of, of settlement. Um, two was, um, you know, the kind of uh, servicing of clients, um, you know, talking to them on you know, markets and stocks and so forth. But the third part was research, um, which at this firm, they didn't really have research, uh, a research team or a research uh, individual uh, looking at stocks. So I, I, I just said, you know, do you mind if I do this? And they said, no, go ahead. Uh, we'll see how you get on. Well, and uh, any companies come to mind that you researched and how they <laughs> turned out? Oh, they were all awful. I got it all completely <laughs> wrong. Um, first of all, you know, I forgot about inflation uh, inflation uh, analysis. You know, so you have to, even though you think a company's doing, growing its top line by 10%, you had to strip out inflation first. So <laughs> I, I think they were very kind and they just kind of looked at the notes and said, well, we'll see, we'll see about it next time. But uh, I think they, they didn't really kind of uh, put any of their, uh, their, their, their clients into into any of the recommendations I made, but it was a good learning curve because you could feel what people wanted, um, you know, from that. Yeah, I, I can imagine uh, going into a firm where there's no research desk, getting your hands dirty. Lucky to have people who allow you to play around, make your mistakes, and learn. That you know that could have been pretty interesting a learning curve out there, right? Yeah. So so what happened? Um, 
was then um, uh, I moved to a different uh, broking firm in, in, I think, 1981. We did Manchester again. And at that time, you know, sometimes you've just been in the right place, right? Um, and there was something called the unlisted securities market, which was an unusual name because it's actually listed stocks. Um, uh, what it would be would be like rather than have a five-year record, you might have a three-year track record. But you go on to the unlisted securities market. And there was a whole host of this in, in, in the 80s, you know, because as things picked up, there was, uh, you know, from funeral companies to, you know, fitness companies to, you know, come into the market. So the research I was doing then was, was some of these companies were coming to the market uh, for the first time. Um, and, and, you know, some of them were northern-based companies as well. So, you know, they did, they did very well. So I kind of you know, kind of became known as, as someone in the North who was following quite a lot of companies um, which were on this exchange. Um, and, uh, and and that worked, you know, worked well for me because in, in 1984, uh, I then moved to London um, to actually set, you know, in a, a very big London-ranked uh, uh, research house. And um, they said, you know, you're in charge of uh, doing small and mid caps, but mainly unlisted securities market, which is where they fell. Um, and that's really the, the, the big uh, opportunity that I had, um, you know, to build, to build a franchise. Wow. Wow. And uh, what I found uh, uh, particularly interesting is that uh, unlisted securities are those which didn't have a full track record. Uh, and imagine if that rule still existed a lot of people who are so-called punting on IPOs and then, you know, losing a lot of their money because they don't know much about the company would not really happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously some of the, I, I'm going back now, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, I, I think at that time there was a, a, some kind of tech boom as well. Um, and a lot of companies would just change their name, um, you know, to have that part of tech in it. Um, and the share price was just going up. The company hadn't done anything new. Um, but what I used to do was I wasn't covering all of the companies. So I'd be very selective and say, you know, in the 20, com the 20 companies I followed uh, would be ones which I felt would become larger companies in the future, not just remain a, a, a small and mid cap. Um, so it's very, you know, you're very um, uh, you know, careful of what, uh, what, what companies you were, um, you know, you were, you were going to follow because, um, at that time, I've moved more away from the retail investor now to the institutional uh, investor, uh, you know, the, the, the mutual funds or the equivalent of mutual funds in the UK, pension funds. And of course, they have their own teams and due diligence and fund managers. Yeah. So it was really, um, you know, having to convince them um, about that. Uh, so I, I, I should have mentioned that prior to coming to, to, to London, though, one of the, the fun things that I did um, was uh, I became one of the youngest members of the Manchester Stock Exchange, um, wow. which uh, then obviously folded and went into the London Stock Exchange, uh, passed all the exchange exams, um, and um, you know that was uh, that was a fun time, you know, just uh, be able to because once you once you've done all of those exams and you pass them and you become a member of the Stock Exchange. I could walk on the floor in London, not as though I did, and I could actually buy and sell shares with the jobbers or the market makers as we would look at them today. 
Um, so it used to be a lot of fun because sat in Manchester, I would say, okay, I like this XYZ company. Um, you then speak to clients um, and, and the other salespeople would speak to their clients and then you get the orders. And of course, I was also transacting the orders too on wow. the floor of the exchange by phone, not by physically. But uh, So that was a, a lot of fun. And I think it um, gave me a, a good advantage of what boosts share prices. It's not just fundamentals, right? There's a lot of uh, other factors that go into it. So having that feel for how prices were moving, how markets were moving, was very, very helpful to me. Yeah, you know, I find this interesting because uh, in this uh, day and age, it's become so easy to transact, right? And yeah. there is no, not much output. It's only input, but you're just trying to transact. But I guess when you are on that floor of the exchange and you're, then there's so much more energy and vibes floating around that uh, it's a whole uh, ball game to master and execute. You may have found the stock, but how to execute must be like an amazing skill. So, so you'd go to, let's say there's um, three market makers in the stock. So you let's say you want to buy 25,000 shares. So you, you go and ask for the quote, right? So let's say 100 to 102 uh, in 10, in 10,000 shares. And you say, okay, what for 25? Um, and then they said, you could tell that they probably didn't want to sell the stock to you. So then you went to the next one and he was like, I'm, I, I'm now 100 to 101. So in other words, he's, he, he's happy to give you the stock. So you got to feel for where, you know, whether anyone was, whether you were buying on the uprise or you're actually, you know, there's a lot of stock behind this market maker, which you can, you know, you're 25, you can probably fill 10 times. Yeah. So it was, it was good in that respect to get a feel for, you know, how share prices uh, move and, and, and the dynamics behind it. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah. you know, I've, I've seen it once, the whole process in the early 90s in India. Then, of course, we also went electronic and doesn't exist. But that's something that's lost <laughs> to history. It, it, but, you know, it's such fun because you met some you know, real characters on, on the floor and they got <laughs> to, you know, they, um, you know, because they're all from, uh, a lot of them from the east end of London. Mm -hmm. um so you know they, they weren't uh you know oxford kind of educated um but could they make money yes they could make money. yeah you know the, the one thing i learned in bombay for the little time I, I went to the stock exchange over there uh i'm saying over there because i'm sitting in narvan point and pointing towards the stock exchange <laughs> uh uh it is uh i met a lot of jobbers who made a lot of money because the spread was so high Yes, they had the uh, uh, they had the holding part to keep it on their books, and they were cleaning out. Man, they were making a lot of money more than the guys who were buying and selling the shares. Yeah, no, I mean there was there was uh, there's many stories I have on that and how you you know how we made lots of money um, just by being a little bit smart and 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 uh, you know not doing anything which is wrong, but just just you know just having the so for example, if there's one of the companies I followed. Um, was being taken over by another company. Now, unless the company acquiring share price was about to collapse, which we didn't think it was, then actually by buying the existing uh, company shares, which were being taken over, and then having them moved into these new shares, you get a 10% kind of pop, right? Because no one had really looked into it. So yes. I went and said, here's the opportunity. Well, we made a lot of money for our clients. It's very good. I guess that's, I think that's the thing that the market brought out. There were a lot of inefficiencies. If you were a little yes. smart, 
you could really yeah. make that money. And now we are down to the second decimal of efficient inefficiency. So, <laughs> yeah, but there's still there's still money to be made. That's for sure. Yeah. This yeah. Oh, of course, hundred percent. That's why we all are here, right? Because yeah. there's money to be made in uh, fundamentals and uh, uh, finding mispriced opportunities. Okay, uh, so from where uh, you you set up when institutional doing small cap, yeah. mid cap. So, so, so in the UK, you had something called the um, um, Excel um, research uh, kind of rankings, okay. uh, which so once a year as an analyst, you it's a bit like the Asia Money Survey or the Institutional Investor Survey now. It, it rolled into that in the end. Um, you'd wait to see if you were ranked or not. And of course, being ranked meant, you know, you got uh, a lot more... Uh, uh, credibility in the marketplace with institutional clients. Um, and it's kind of that self-feeding thing, uh, Rahul, without trying to be big-headed or anything like that. But, you know, once you get to be the top-ranked analyst, if you say buy, then actually people believe you and the share price goes up. So it's a self-fulfilling part of it. So you you wanted to get into the... So my first year in London, I, I came number two uh, in the rankings. And I think... Uh, up until I, I, I left in, uh, which I'll come to um, when I moved to Asia, um, uh, was either one, two or three. I mean, that's uh, usually two, two and three. And um, that was, um, so that was, the, that was, uh, that was, a, that was a good thing. So I was working for this broking firm and I knew to another broking firm. So the first broking firm was a, a company called, um, uh, well, it got changed so many times, but it became NatWest. Okay, in that West Market. We live in that West, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then I moved to BZW or Barclays, Barclays Bank. Doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, took, took my team with me. Uh, that was about, when was that? That would have been 88. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Was it 88? Maybe it'd been 87. I can't remember. Is it 87, 88? But. Obviously, in '87 was the the big crash. Yeah, right? you can't forget that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't forget it, but here's a funny thing, right? I was actually on holiday. I was in holiday in the US, and uh, I had an Australian friend who was staying at my house. So it was like a couple of days before we're going back. So I had spoken to him. So I thought I just give him a call to see, you know, how he is, and how's the house, and everything's okay. And he said, oh, he said, you must be calling because, um, you know, to see if your roof is still there. I said, what are you talking? (laughs) And it's when that had that, uh, the UK was virtually shut down because it had this big hurricane or something come through, um, which blew off a lot of people's houses and everything. And that, the Monday afterwards, so that was a Friday, and the Monday was Black Monday. Uh, And so I walked into the office and... You know, the one good thing about not being in the office for the two weeks, two and a half weeks before, um, was that you didn't feel, um, you, you knew something was changing. Uh, whereas I think if it would have been that run-up, it would have been, oh, no, it's okay. It's just a, a quick market correction. But I took out my red pen um, on all the forecasts that I had um, for all the companies and said, I went out to the clients and said, you need to sell now because this is what's going to happen to the housing market or to this sector or to this sector, given these challenges that we see now. So whilst it might, may not have liked me for doing that, um, they actually thanked me in terms of at least being being honest in terms of what um, of what, what could happen 
um, to the profitability of those companies. Wow. And, and, and you attribute this to the fact that you were away from your desk, which yes. gave you a different perspective. You know, that's, and that, that works for a lot of people, right? Uh, and, and you don't even have to be deliberate about it at times. You have to just let it work on its own. And it comes to you. Do, do, yeah. do, do you believe that? Does that happen to you more often? Yeah. No. So, you know, I've always been a great believer in, in, uh, in, in taking time off, um, you know, taking your holidays. I, I think, you know, if you take any kind of time period, right? So the first week, you're probably still thinking about the markets. The second week, you're kind of saying, okay, I'm enjoying my holiday now. It's okay, what can I do? Um, and But then you're thinking about coming back. So you start kind of gearing up again. But if you take an extra kind of four or five days, so it becomes two and a half weeks, you're really that last week and a half is purely relaxed because there's nothing else you can do. And and, and you're doing other things. You're, you're, you're looking around wherever you are, whichever country you are. What are the, what are the things which are happening there? Um, which could be a trend that comes to the UK. Um, so, for example, I'll give you for an example. It's a weird example. Um, but, um, you know, in the 80s, if you remember, um, AIDS was, was, was a very, very big thing. And it, it started to pick up significantly in the, uh, in, in, in the US. And I've been to the US and um, just came back and said, listen, I, I, I think... You know, whilst I'm not saying this will be, you know, something that happens in the UK, but if it does, then I think the trend would be that, you know, condom makers in the UK will do actually very well. And they did. Their, their, you know, their sales uh, increased, you know, multifold. So sometimes just, just being somewhere else gives yeah. you ideas of what could be the future uh, yeah. for your markets too. Yeah, and the and the point you make is so critical, and this is something we touch upon later in the podcast and uh, how the conversation goes. Is uh, it is very important to have a broader perspective. So you may be investing in India, but it's important to have a global perspective because you don't know how it's going to connect. You yeah. could get ideas from anywhere, and therefore you should be reading international. You should be watching international. Uh, you should be meeting international, traveling international, and uh, somehow it all comes together and works out and seems to have worked out for you for sure. Wonderful. So uh, where next? Where, uh, so uh, this was Black Monday. Uh, you, you, you got yeah. the call, right? So that's, uh, you know. So that, uh, was, that, was, that was good. And then uh, I think around that time or just a bit later that I moved to Barclays or BZW to do, to, again, do the same uh, industry, which I did till 1992. <laughs> Uh, but in 1991, I went to my uh, head of research in London and said, listen, I, 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 you know, this might sound strange to you, but I actually think gonna, Asia will be the powerhouse um, going forward over the longer term. Um, I'd like to work in Asia um, in research. Um, so fortunately, BZW had quite a number of uh, offices around the region. Uh, at that time. Asia was kind of pretty much booming, I think, around that time. Yep. Um, so they said, okay, let me speak to people in, in Asia. And, uh, you know, we don't want to lose you, but I understand where you're coming from. So uh, he calls me back a few days later and said, you know, the head of Asia is coming over. Um, you know, I think, um, I think they're thinking about Thailand as head of research. So I said, okay, that's great. So I did, uh, you know, 
tried to find any research I could on Thailand. And so I sound at least a little bit kind of knowledgeable, apart from knowing it from, you know, actually, I, I'm not sure if I'd been on holiday. Uh, yes, I probably had been on holiday there once, um, but didn't really know very much about it, to be honest. Um, anyway, so 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 the um, managing director of Asia comes in and he said, um, he said, you know, uh, sorry, um, Thailand, it's gone. Uh, we've got a we've got a, a head of research. How about South Korea? So I said South Korea. Now let me think. They had the Olympics there in '88. I absolutely knew nothing about South Korea. Now you know, there's one of those things you can say, no, I'll wait for the better market, or because obviously the, the the key markets then in, in Asia were Hong Kong, Singapore. I'm excluding Japan because I'm talking about Asia. Uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Thailand. Right. Nowhere else was really didn't really matter. So I said, okay, let me let let me go and look. Um, now, so I went on a on a on a look around, and uh, and uh, you know, obviously there was a two two people in research, and it was a branch. So really, you know, it's helped the whole thing to build up. And I thought, you know, this I'm going to give it a go. Um, I don't know what made me just take that that leap because, uh, and I'll tell you more about that leap in a second. But it was it was it was something which was a very big leap because not only was I just moving country, I was moving markets where I had no expertise. Um, my son at the time was one, and my daughter was to be born, which was born in Korea. So it was a it was a big family leap as well uh, in doing it. Um, but it was brilliant, uh, absolutely brilliant, because anything that I'd learned in the UK, I needed to throw in the bin and start all over again. <laughs> right? And I, I, I just touched on two things why that was. One, there was no consolidated accounts in, in Korea. Okay. Right? So it's all you know, individual companies. So you, you could work out you know, if a group was making money or not, because it's all different. Um, and net debt to equity, on average, mm. I'm talking about net debt, not talking about gross debt, I'm talking about net debt, was 150 to 200%. Wow. Right? Now, yeah. in the UK, anything that got that debt is going to bust, or it must have yeah. raise, to raise money. In Korea, it was... Didn't the norm. Yeah. Didn't the tables, right? The tables, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, but what fun. I had, I, I mean... Uh, from a research perspective, it was it was uh, enormously kind of uh, uh, you know kind of a big learning curve for me. But here's um, the billion dollar question: Did you catch mm -hmm. Samsung early or no? So Samsung at that time was very very small. It's mainly known for semiconductors. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I know the memory the memory ones the the low yeah. value ones. Yeah. yeah, and so they were very small. I mean, they were always you know trying to compete with Toshiba. Um, in, in Japan, um, but I remember going to the um, going to the um, you know Samsung Electronics, which you know so the tiny part of electronics was semiconductors. The bigger part that they were trying to push was all of these kind of record players and TVs, TVs yeah. which which you know were you know if you take your kind of uh, you know if if the Japanese TVs were here um, and then you know Korea was down here somewhere. Right, yeah. but their vision was that we will be one of the biggest players in the world. Now, the problem in doing that is that they didn't really care about shareholder value, 
Um, so they just spent money and, and so forth. But it was um, it was fantastic. And I was very, very fortunate in that, um, you know, we had good access to, to the main companies. Um, and because they, again, they opened up to foreign investors. So they were very keen that foreign investors were, um, you know, allowed access and particularly the research analysts um in, in in that respect so um so it's very I, I think 1992 was a was a good time to be in south korea um um in, in terms of just be able to kind of um, get access to those companies yeah, that, because that, um, you, that miracle was still on right the far east the miracle all those economies on the eastern rim of asia was still booming they had yeah, no it was it was a it was a fantastic time yeah. to be uh, to, to be in in, in korea um, and, you can borrow uh, all you want, spend all you want, care to yeah. about the shoulder. Yeah, well, that's what they did, um, they and did. Uh, and uh, you know, I, so I, I mean, the way it worked in Korea was that uh, you know you you would um, let's say you wanted to do an overseas issue, a GDR issue, um, then um, you everyone would pitch, right? But part of your pitch. Okay, was where the chairman or the CEO uh, would play golf in Scotland because they love golf. I'm being serious. So you know, it wasn't necessarily your 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 capabilities. It was obviously your capabilities mattered, but uh, also the, your access to uh, St Andrews in the, in Scotland for, for playing golf. Um, but it, but that's what I'm saying. It, it was it was such a, a great learning curve because I think if I would have gone to Hong Kong or Singapore or Thailand, I think it would have been not not as so much a learning curve because there's a lot of anyway a lot of brokers there. There's a lot of yeah, yeah. Um, coverage. So I think I was very lucky. The food was fantastic. The people were great. Um, so we had a fabulous time. The Wild West for you. It was a little bit better than the West. <laughs> and uh, you were there in Korea for how long? So I, I actually moved to India in 1997. So um, second, I, if, I, if I have my dates right, 2nd July 97 is when the whole uh, currency collapse uh, started with the Thai baht. And then every, everyone followed, of course, right? All these Malaysia, South Korea... Everyone followed. And 98, it was Russia. So by then, everything was done in that one-year period, August 98. Yeah. So so, her, so here's the funny part. So so I was in Southern South Korea, and uh, uh, Merrill Lynch came to me and said, uh, you know, would you be interested in you know, building the office in South Korea? So I said, listen, I've just spent well, five years or more doing the same for Barclays. So I really kind of got the T-shirt for that one. And then we just had a few drinks and we were just chatting, just generally. And I said to him, he said, you know, uh, one place that's interesting, because I, I came on a holiday here in 93, 94. And I just relayed the same story that to him. I said, you know, I was walking down the street and I saw all these papers outside, what looked like newspapers outside a garage, a uh, you know, petrol station. So I said, I walked over and it was all IPO, <laughs> IPO forms. So I said, you know, I... I said, there's something that will, you know, it, it has has an interest for me in 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 India, uh, that's for sure. Didn't think anything of it. Six months later, he calls me back and says, um, you know, um, you think you talked to me about wanting to go to India. 
Well, we just acquired a stake in uh, DSP Merrill Lynch. I mean, the uh, would you would you like to come and, uh, and and head up the research? So of course I said yes. I'll I'll go over and meet them. Metamendra, Shitin, oh, you know the whole gang, um, and it just you know just felt like the right place to be. Um, so I remember just before I came over, uh, I think they changed the government a couple of times actually. Mm-hmm. In, in yeah, 90, yeah, in, yeah, in 92, I think. That um, was the uh, period of India's coalition governments. Yes, so I think the Davy government, go- government went in or out, I can't remember now. There was IK Gujarat, there was Devi Gorda, there were, and there was a BJP government. Three governments within three, four years. Yeah. yeah. So going back to your, your currency crisis, so what happened was that uh, Merrill Lynch decided to do a um, uh, a big roadshow of all the people, the, all the heads of research um, from Asia would do this roadshow in London, US, um, and, and talk about, you know, obviously, you know, their, their, you know, their countries, and particularly because of the um, the currency crisis. So I was sitting there very comfortably saying, you know, I didn't know that much about India still, but I had enough to say that, you know, India's, you know, doesn't, uh, you know, it's, it, there's no uh, currency convertible, it's not, uh, the convertible currency is not there. And I said, um, so there's no kind of run on the on the rupee, um, and and so forth and so on. Trying to put the safe haven, right? Yep. Uh, India story there. Then, of course, halfway through, they tested the nuclear bomb. <laughs> the BJP government, that's right. Uh-huh. So, so of course, the market collapsed. So my safe haven story had gone. Um, you know, on this on this tour, but it, again, it was uh, it was it was it was fun, and um, you know, worked with a, a, a talented bunch of, of people from uh, on the equity side, uh, both research and sales. And um, within the first year, you know, within this kind of uh, Asia money uh, institutional investor, we were you know in the in the, in the top three, uh, you know, from nowhere. So um, you know, we, we actually did quite a lot of fun things as well. We were one of the first to. So when I first came to India, um, the big picture story was infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? You think about 92, uh, sorry, 97, is everything was about infrastructure. So we said, okay, um, why don't we go and do this? Why don't we send out people? So we sent out people to look at, is, is any of this being financed? So who's financing these projects? Is actually been sanctioned or not? Then we send people out to say, is actually that road being built or not? Right? So we did the first kind of overall um, research of is infrastructure happening in India or not? And of course, you know, clients loved it because no one had really you know, put their feet on the ground and, and done the extra work. So um, that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, uh, even uh, Equity Master was around then already. And uh, we realized very quickly it has to be all feet on the ground because uh, what's being reported in the press was not totally reliable. A lot of it is PR. So you had to go on the streets and see everything, whether it's happening or not. So uh, this is where I think uh, you're in India now. And you, you of course, wrote the whole Far East miracle. You uh, got away from it before it collapsed. And you landed in at the beginning of yet another boom, right? The TMT boom. Yes. So that was another period you referred to changing the name. 98, 99 was the perfect period to change your name and get a higher valuation. You had to add a dot com. 
do it. Yes, yes, I, I agree. But I, I remember seeing, uh, there's two companies that always stand out to me in that time. Um, actually, three companies, I should say. So I first went to meet uh, Infosys. Uh, I think this would have been 98. We did, again, we were one of the first to do a um, investor roadshow. Our investor, you know, the you know the big investor kind of jamborees that everyone has these days. Um, and we had about three overseas clients at that time interested in India. Um, but we went to Emphasis uh, to meet them. I, I don't think they had a campus at that time. I think it was just one building with a... With a I, I don't you know, remember. Um, uh, and then we met Vipro. And um, they, they were, if, if you remember back in 97 or 98, they were mainly into food yep. at the time. And they yep. said, no, we're going to move into, you know, IT services. And we said, why? You don't, you've got to create food business. Now, we were wrong and they were completely right. Um, and the third company I met was, uh, was Tata. And it's when they were introducing their first passenger car, the Indigo. I think it's Indigo. Indigo. Yes. And, in, in Indigo. Indigo. Yes, yes. So um, they, they, they said to us, you know, why don't you come for a test drive? Which I don't think they ever do anymore, right? Um, so, of course, we went there with the analyst. And uh, I said, I only want to sit in the back. I, said, I don't want to drive it. I only want to sit in the back. And the reason I wanted to sit in the back was see how much room it had against a Maruti. It was spacious compared to Maruti. I said, this is going to take off. And that's how we became known to 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 write one of the first bullish reports in Tata Motors. Wow. wow. The, the, yeah, the Indica story in itself is amazing. And, yes. you know, actually, uh, my family owned that first generation of the Indicas. And you're right. The first feeling you get when you enter is it's very roomy for yeah. a small hatchback. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So that's... Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the whole 99 TMT boom bust, right? Uh, how were you placed then? And uh, how how did you see it unraveling and how did you deal with it? So, you know, I, I, I think at the time, um, because the, you know, India was still, when I say it was on the radar of institutional investors globally, it really was just on the radar. It wasn't, it was more for information. Um, there wasn't, I think there was two big clients at the time. There was um, Capital and there was Schroders, um, who were the big daddies, right? Of, of uh, and if you could break them, uh, I think Jardine Fleming might have been there as well at that time. But though, the, I mean, they, so it, it was really minuscule amounts that you were talking about. And of course, our mutual fund industry was still nascent. Back in then, so so it was mainly the retail side, I think, which we weren't involved with, uh, which I think uh, you know suffered from this. So I think it was we would give information, but we weren't, uh, you know, we, for foreign clients, they weren't uh, they weren't so engaged in terms of they had a lot of money in these stocks. So I think we just kind of rode through it. Um, but yeah, we had quite a lot of uh, uh, stocks which were supposed to have been the next darlings, which just did never happened. Yeah. Yeah, Never yeah. happened. Okay, so let's let's jump straight to two thousand and six, seven, eight, nine, right? Uh, just, just before before you do that, Rahul, is is what's interesting is that let's go back to two thousand and two, two thousand and three. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. If you remember, that was SARS. SARS, that's right. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember, you know, um, obviously people were worried. 
what was happening in India, the numbers in India. And I said, you know, I think more people die generally in the day than they do from SARS in India. So I, I don't think it's a big concern. Um, but you know what the market P was at that time? Probably eight. I, I don't know. Eight, eight, exactly. It was eight. You have a great <laughs> memory. You have a great memory. No, it's eight. It was cheap. Indian market was cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we, we went out and we did a lot of work and said, India is cheap, whichever way you look at it. And if you think there's going to be a boom, um, you know, across emerging markets, then India is going to um, attract a lot of money going forward. And that's it. so that goes back to that um, whole uh, move for the economy was really all the hard work that BGP had done, right? That's In right. In terms of the roads and everything else, which yep. the... Um, 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 the UPA. The UPA, UPA, can, yeah, yeah. UPA can have benefited from. Uh, and that whole India shining story kind of came about. So I think we just, you know, kind of went on the coattails of everything else um, that was, was happening in Asia. Um, and it was, a, it was a fun time. But I remember, um, you know, saying to someone, I think the, I can't remember if I said this, must have been the Sensex, and Sensex will go to 10,000. I think it was 6,000 at the time. And he said, you know, you're mad. It's never going to go there. And of course, it was there within minutes. Right? It was, again, a, a great learning curve. Um, you know, there was um, a lot of interest in India, um, you know, uh, but it wasn't now. Now India was not on the radar. You had many investors, not just from the UK and, and, and from the US, but from Europe, Australia, uh, and obviously the, the Middle East and Far East. Yeah. So uh, how did the, uh, the so-called great financial crisis work out for you over here? Uh, because I think that also overlaps with infrastructure or the report you mentioned, because in the mid 2000s, there was a lot of money available. A lot of companies leveraged out dramatically, uh, be it real estate, be it the infrastructure companies, uh, big IPOs, Reliance Power, you know, the mother of all IPOs. And uh, then uh, we had the massive sellout. How were you uh, placed all along in that uh, journey? So, so Rahul, just, uh, just to kind of um, go back a little bit, um, in 2006, um, you know, uh, 2000, late 2005 going into 2006, Merrill Lynch took a 90% stake in DSP, if, uh, if you again remember. Yep. Um, and I felt that um, I was double-hatted at the time. I was looking after research, but I was also the COO. Um, but I felt, you know, I, I, I'd rather be in the markets and <laughs> you know what it was like right? than, than looking at some legal contract. Yeah. Um, so I said, I want to do something different. So uh, they put me in heading, heading up um, the, um, what was called the um, internal hedge fund. Um, and it's part of the um, uh, strategic uh, you know, risk group, uh, SRG it was called. Um, which globally, Merrill's had about $10 billion of, of, of balance sheet money. And they said, you know, can you set up some stuff uh, twofold? One, you know, run a, run a you know, prop, um, get a team, uh, and we'll give you $500 million to, to run that. And if you can also build a research team, which will feed into the global um, guys as well. Um, so that's that was a mandate. So... Um, along with my now uh, co-CEO, Vaibhav Sangwe, Piyush Shah, who worked with me in equities, 
uh, we all got together in kind of 2006, 2007, started this journey uh, as a hedge fund. Mm -hmm. um, now, going into 2008, um, um, we were, it, it, actually, if you remember, our markets were still good. It was a global market which had been falling throughout the year. So there was still that kind of uh, optimism and, and, and reliance uh, infrastructure was always going to be listed. Uh, but a few things kind of made us worried because you could see what's happening globally. And this is what you said at the very beginning. You can't just ignore global events. Um, so there's a few events that happened which made us a bit cautious. And of course, as soon as things started to unfold, because at that time, anyway, we we're only dealing in futures and uh, mainly futures, single stock futures and, 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 and nifty. Uh, we just brought the whole book down to cash. Um, now, yes, did we lose a little bit of money? Throughout the year, we did make money, but um, throughout 2008. But in that year, um, we just took a, a small hit, um, you know, in, in the kind of big falls. And what saved us was this, I think. Um, was that um, a lot of the broking houses or the, the CEOs of the broking houses globally were saying, you know, we, we've looked at this, we've done haircuts to this uh, through our analysts and, and, you know, we think we've, we've provided enough now. Now, you know, being an analyst myself, I know there's one thing that we don't do is we don't take our big red pen and, 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 and mark things down so, so much, right? We just think what's a more rosier, opti optimistic uh, level it could be. Um, so we were always on the view that, um, you know, markets would actually fall more because there'd be bigger problems going forward. So we were uh, very nimble um, and uh, we just, uh, you know, we're in and out of the markets a, a lot quicker than we wanted to be. Uh, but we managed to, throughout 2008, make some money. Wow, really? So you yes. you actually had a positive year in 2008? We did. Wow. Wow. And all, if I heard you right, all bases the view that the analysts are generally optimistic is going to be worse than what they think it will be. And on that view, you said, you know, let's sit on the sidelines. Sit a little bit on the sidelines, wait to the times when either the markets have moved up and then we could be a little bit. But if you remember that time, um, you know, the, there was obviously restrictions on being short or anything like that. Oh, yeah. um, so, um, so we're very careful, but mainly we made most of our money on the, on the upside because markets would come down so much uh, and you know there'd be some action taken or there will be action taken by, by, by somebody. Uh, to kind of shore things up, but it was, it was never enough. So you were always just, you always knew that the markets would come back for more um, because it wasn't enough for them. So it's, it's really just weaving our way through that um, without taking excessive risk. You didn't need to take excessive risk at the time. And uh, were there any indicators other than the belief of uh, that, you know, numbers tend to be optimistic? Were there any indicators you guys were tracking that sort of flagged red and you said now, you know, no matter what our investors expect of us, whatever Merrill Lynch, SRG expects of us, or, or whatever the others, hedge fund stuff, we're going out. We'd rather hold cash and not make money than to lose it all. Yeah, because you're working on the balance sheet of Merrill's, obviously, you know, they were happy. You know, if you made some money, great. But if you were just protecting capital, 
and that's the one the thing that we, we reminded our reigned with us today is you know protect capital first uh, because then you still have that capital to fight another day um and you know if you're making um you know 10 10 12 percent in the year that's good enough right you don't need to kind of you know break the uh you know you know, kind of win every time um and of course our markets were a little bit more shallow at the time so it it, it didn't uh, doesn't help you but uh, um again it was a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, watching cnbc till late in the night speaking to my colleagues around the world finding out what they're thinking what they're hearing um and um and, and taking it from there really yeah yeah okay now let's jump to the pandemic how did the pandemic go for you guys how were you positioned because you have a global perspective so the question really in fact i should kick off with that is did you hear anything in 2019 that something is happening and you guys should be alert yeah so um you know so if i said to you before that you know sometimes being away is is good sometimes you know being away is not so good mm-hmm. um and i think what what uh, what what happened is this is so i just uh, think anything between 2009 to 2020 um there was many many different things right but i mean generally um just in terms of career wise uh, the team and i moved to ambit mm-hmm. um and that was when we first set up the um the uh, alternative investment fund or hedge fund as, as we call it cat3 mm-hmm. uh and then the whole team moved to abendus in in 2017 um just to give you the context of where we yep. where we are today um so so again i was in i was in the, i was in the us i'm always in the us when these things happen right and uh, so we were picking up the news of 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 this happening but we could see this more towards italy outside of outside the us and the us no one was wearing masks no one was doing anything okay okay um and so by the being if i think i came back just after the just after the um uh, budget so middle of february at that time what i thought um and uh, again coming through the airports uk us uk no restrictions no nothing no no mass so you're thinking okay it's not as bad as may- maybe it's a sars maybe some it's, it's a more of a asian problem like sars was so that was your initial thinking um until you know things started to explode um so you know again what we did rahul we said okay we 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 don't know we've never been through a pandemic i know i'm quite old but i haven't got that record <laughs> um so we took the fund um to 98% cash and oh. sat there again going back to your core belief safety first live to fight another day lift the fight another day the market i think was down in that march was down 30% mm-hmm. uh, and our 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 um our our, our return was uh, 0.9% uh, negative for that one month oh wow and when did you start selling uh, if i may ask the when you landed back in india mid no i think it, no because i think you went through that kind of you know trying to gauge you know you're thinking i've just come from developed world which is not um very mass there seems to be no problems italy has its problems um china we weren't sure of the numbers 
And there was this stats coming out, you know, similar to what SARS was uh, back in those days of, of hospitalization. But I don't think anyone picked it up. It's going to go so quickly. Uh, but as soon as it did, and as soon as we could start to see that in the markets, we said, we're out. We're just going to liquidate and sit on the sidelines and see what happens. So you had already been through that process of thinking. So when you got the first flag, you said, let's let's go and sit yeah. on the sidelines. Oh, that's, that's a very, you know, a, a, that's a very extreme call. And it's a kind of a career defining move in the sense that it could have proved to proven to be horribly wrong. But uh, here I quote, uh, kind of quote, uh, Charlie Bunger. And he said the same thing in March 2020. He said that uh, we'll be happier if we come out with more cash at the other end of the pandemic than less. Basically implying this is not the time to be buying. This is the time to be hoarding cash because you don't know what's going to happen. I guess that's what he was implying. So it's it's a tough call. But uh, I guess if you put safety above returns, this is this is what you do. Yeah, and you know our investors obviously were were, were thankful for that. Um, now on the upside, when market started to recover, could we have made more? Yes, but we were, you know, we decided that we'd we'd do exactly what we did back in two thousand eight, which was there'll be times when markets are looking good, and there'll be times when markets are looking bad. Let's pick our moments. Let's be a little bit quicker with our buying and selling. Then, instead of always, let's just say you you like um, X Y Z stock. You would normally hold that for longer. But if you're seeing a 10% return or 15% return in a month, let's take it off the table. We don't know what's going to happen. Because the pandemic was something that we hadn't faced before. Um, and, uh, you know, you can only go a little bit by history, but this is completely different, right? Yeah. And when did you start getting back in the market? Yes, slowly but surely, you know, increasing it. So, so but it, again, by the end of the year, we were positive. I mean, it's not as so we we'd lost money at all. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people watching in hindsight uh, would would think that was not the right move. And they're thinking of the absolute return, but not realizing the risk they carried with them on March just by being fully invested. So if you're knowingly doing that, it's fine. But if you don't realize you carried a lot of risk, then the next time around, the risk could play out. And, you know, you could be sitting with massive losses, right? Yeah. But we do this at many times, Rahul. It's not just the fact that, um, you know, COVID happened, um, you know, throughout the years from 2013 to 2000 or today. Uh, there's been many times that we've been at uh, high cash levels, maybe not as high as 97, but certainly towards 90, you know, when there's a, an election, for example, you know, maybe uh, back in 2014, you know, which way was it? Would, would it go? What do, I mean, we're not, you know, election experts, right? So again, we'd rather find out from the exit polls so you have that clarity of where you think things are going to happen and then go back into the market. So you might miss, see, I think it's all about, it, does it matter if you lose the first 5% or a little bit more on a, on a big increase of, say, 20 to 25% of the market? Trying to find the bottom is, is the most difficult thing to do. So I'd, I'd rather much miss out a little bit, but be able to step into the market with, with confidence. Yeah, I, I like that approach. Uh, and, and, and I think uh, if you've defined it well and you've trained your investors to expect that kind of a, 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 a sort of follow-through, that's perfect. You know, this works well. You carry less risk. 
and what you don't understand you stay away from and predicting the elections has <laughs> become a you know it's a joke right uh, everyone has the number in 2019 i remember you know ntv does their very popular show and everyone does it uh, they all were at 210 220 230 240 but by the time the exit polls came suddenly the situation started changing and by the time the results came it they changed a little bit more and uh, you know we are research analysts not sophologists and even sophologists yeah. get it wrong in that sense so i agree so i said there's many times not just uh, so any you know there's been big events you know tantra you know, t- tape tantrum you know when they say the fed or someone was having to uh, um you know kind of um, you know make a big announcement you know, yeah we'll just go more to cash um because we can sit and wait for that outcome um but i, I tell you i, I want to go back to one one episode back in thinking about um um you know again um i wasn't out of the country was I out of the country uh, no i wasn't out of the country but if it is a big um, event you were out of the country <laughs> no well it was actually it, it became a big event because it, it was um uh 2013 remember when the currency went from 50 up to that's the taper time uh, the fra- yeah. fragile five uh, was that the fragile five period i don't know what I it was gr- it was it was greece right greece was a big problem at that time yeah. Uh, but I remember I was out and I was I was talking to a, a global economist. And I said, "You yeah, know, what do you think about uh, the Indian rupee?" And his words were, and I always remember it: "India is the Greece of Asia, <laughs> right?" So, with that knowledge of this is how people think about India. Once that started to happen, they then think about. how does this work what stock should i be buying what stock should i be selling or shorting so it's obvious right anyone who had lots of overseas debt you would sell and because they'd be in problems the banking sector yeah. what would you buy advice safety yeah it pharma benefits yeah, that's of the right. beneficiaries right. of yeah. yeah what what i want to re- emphasize in what you said is uh interacting with people uh in different geographies and trying to understand how they think about of it we are so deep in what we are doing that you know we so we 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 suffer from biases and the best way to overcome that is just to open up the world and just try and learn from everywhere so we have a whole bunch of other questions to go through so let's get to that yeah uh we spoke of some stocks we didn't speak of stocks we spoke of you know all the horse racing and the other stuff you were doing the unlisted do you remember your first investment you made and and what really happened to it i do and it's quite a it's quite a funny story well, it wasn't funny at the time um so i mean i doubled it a little bit you know just by having a share here you know i i didn't have that much money in those days right so with my research i'd probably buy you know a couple of pounds worth of shares just mm-hmm. to get a feel of of that but i think my big my first biggest investment was you know a a good friend of mine who worked at another broking house in manchester said you know you should buy this company um and his track record was you know he wasn't a research analyst he was more of a you know kind of a, a broker so I, i said okay you know so i put a princely sum of 20 pounds i'm talking about the you know kind of late 70s 80s um and um and there i am and I, said, i remember it's an oil company 
and I'm watching the news, the news at 10, and uh, this headline comes up, uh, you know, showing this, you know, this oil company's field on fire. Twenty pounds is like he's going to be on fire, and it showed this guy, this guy in a white suit, flown in from Texas, called Boobs Hansen, right? Who was supposed to then go and put out the fire. So I, I phoned up the guy the next morning because it was too late then, and I said, "Yeah, well, why would you tell me this?" He said, "What's your problem? We, we bought it because Boots Hansen is going to put the fire out, and the share price will go up." <laughs> so my first lesson was never listen to anyone else without doing your own homework. Research, yeah, that's a good point. Good learning. So I was going to ask you, which was but your I name? did make some money from it. <laughs> oh, really? You made money? Yeah, I yeah, think I put out the fire. I think I put. I, yeah, I put I put out the fire. I think after I got a pound gain, I just you know, decided it went up a lot more. I just you know, I just you know, my my heart was in my mouth the night before. So. so that doesn't count as a failure. So I have to ask you the next one. Which was your first big failure in terms of uh, investment that you made? Um. See at the time, uh, sorry, uh, Rahul is is that when you um, when I moved to London, um, you would never really buy stocks in the companies that you researched. Um, I mean, you could. There was nothing wrong in doing it, um, but it always, you know, my my boss at the time said, you know. Let's say you buy these shares today, and with, there's no no one buying it. It's fine, um, and tomorrow they get taken over. What do you think the headlines in the paper would look like with your name on the front page? Yeah. yeah, it's not worth it, right, for the amount of money you need to do. So, so really, as a, a personal investment, um, you know, I haven't. Uh, it's always been through mutual funds and so forth. So, there's, so I can't really say I'm a personal stock investor but as a research analyst i was obviously saying you should buy this and buy yeah. that and buy this and buy that um so there was uh, yeah plenty of stocks which didn't go right to me. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole handful of them i mean seriously let's pick um, one big, big a big one <laughs> um one which maybe um, you know people will uh, will uh, will um kind of uh, you know resonate with was um um in in the uk there was a, a company called uh, it came to the U, uh, uk why it didn't go to the us i don't know uh called mrs fields remember mrs fields cookies no, they I did cookies know. okay, okay. Uh-huh. they did cookies and, and you know i i went and met them i flew to palo alto i did all of this i did the due diligence i did all the work um they had the right locations and they were doing well but the one thing i missed was that they weren't really on top of what they were doing in the uk um and um when things went wrong for them they went very very quickly wrong and i didn't spot it quickly quickly enough and uh they, they i i not sure they went first but they virtually got, you know went went close to it before being taken over so that was a very bad call because um you know i thought i had it right um and i thought they were the next mcdonald's and of course they weren't ah, happens lovely cookies though yeah lovely <laughs> so uh so you've been at it for 45 years right roughly yeah, around that yeah i got that right yeah 45 yeah yeah, yeah. so uh 
so all along this way, you started with horse racing and you've gone on to do all this stuff. Uh, could you define... It's about gambling, right? <laughs> horse racing. <laughs> I keep coming back to that. It's an amazing start. But uh, talk about your stock selection process. Uh, what do you think has... Uh, what is it evolved into and wh- wh- why does it work the way it works now? What do you think are the unique characteristics that you factor in that uh, make it what it is? So I think there's, there's three parts to being an analyst, right? I'm, I'm putting my analyst hat on and then I'll put my kind of you know, hedge fund hat on as well. It is, um, so when you do a forecast for a company, right? I, I, and you show me this forecast, um, of you think the profits are going to be this. I can assure you within the next one year, you will change those forecasts three or four times, right? Because unless you've got hugely great inside information, you've got those forecasts wrong. Um, So as an analyst, I I learned that very quickly in that I'm not going to get it right. I need to get the trend right. I I need to get this trend right. And in between, do all the checkpoints to make sure it's happening, right? In terms of, you know, going around, making sure. So, for example, companies in the UK uh, and in India, they say, you know, uh, we, we got our, our, our products in XYZ, Sainsbury's or Tesco's. I would go and make sure that they were, right? Um, so extra due diligence on that. So that's what you can do on this bigger trend um, and, 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 and trying to capture that and saying, okay, I don't know if it's going to be 25% earnings growth. It could well be 50, but I'm not going to go with 50 because, you know, I want to do more gradually there. But if you think that, then you're always upgrading. Therefore, you're always giving it a lower rating than it should have really had. Um, And that was brought to me by Body Shop in the UK. So I went to meet them, and they were on 140 times PE, right? But if you actually then looked at actual reality, in two years' time, that 140 PE was actually an PE of 20 because they grew so quickly. So it's capturing that growth, saying that, yes, Body Shop will be wherever it's going to be. Um, and, uh, and, and knowing that earnings are always going to surprise you on the upside or downside. So I'm a great believer that earnings growth or lack of it uh, will, will help you with your share price because it's all about surprising the market. So that's the first thing in terms of, you know, when I'm thinking about uh, analyzing a company. Now, when it comes to then the global factors, uh, we look at three things. Um, in terms of you know, whatever the global growth you're thinking of, but how does that impact commodity prices, currencies, and uh, interest rates? Because all of those three factors will have an impact on India. Positively, negatively for the economy, or positively, negatively for certain companies and sectors. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you're saying uh, today that, and let's take, uh, let's take a scenario, right? Let's take we're going to go for deflation, interest rates falling again globally. Obviously, then India would be. What would you buy? Which sectors would you buy? Right? That's the first part. Who's going to be the beneficiary of that and who's not going to be the beneficiary? 
So to my mind, without kind of thinking about that too hard, would be banks, autos, discretionary. Negative, metals, oil, right? Yep. Because we're saying that global economies collapse, demand has collapsed, and, and, and so forth and so on. So that's where I'd probably go in that, thinking about that trade. Now, then it goes back to, okay, within the, let's say, the IT sector, who's the best? Who do I want to own and why? Right? Now, let's say we own um, both Emphasis and TCS, for this example. Uh, one goes up. The one that's going up, another's much. Then I'm thinking only about what's the opportunity cost of me keeping T TCS, which has done better, than compared to having a bit more in emphasis. So you're thinking all the time about the opportunity cost. And on the short side, you're thinking about the risk. What's the risk of being squeezed? What's the risk of something changing? And how quickly can I um, you know, um, close that position? Mm -hmm. So if I so was... Yeah. Yeah. So if I was to just go through that again, you, so the, I think the first point you made on earnings, the importance of earnings, it's, it, you know, it can't be overstated. But I think I like the point you made, which is get the trend right. Uh, you're not aiming for the perfect number, but you get the trend right. You do, do your due diligence and be sure the trend is right. And if you're behind on the number, it's fine. You can always upgrade and that's fine. But uh, if you do what you know, a lot of analysts do where aim high and then keep correcting down, you know, you don't want to be in that place. So earnings is critical. So keep a focus on earnings. Uh, global factors. I love the way you put the global factors. Uh, commodities, currencies, interest rates. And uh, it almost, uh, it sounded, the way you responded sounded like you had a mental model, which is always in place. And someone tells you, this is happening. You're automatically thinking, naturally, these are the causes deflation, interest rates, look at banking autos discretionary. And I think uh, uh, given that there is so much noise around, movement around, uh, having such a framework simplifies the stock selection process, I guess, in some senses. If you know the trend is pattern is changing and interest rates are going down and you had to look at, for example, autos, then you're thinking autos then, and then you become company specific. Uh, you mentioned Infosys TCS. I, the the follow through question I had on that is, uh, do you bet on one horse, or do you take the top two three to uh, to sort of uh, dilute the risk of a company specific event because you're really playing a macro theme. Yeah, so it, it's not all about me. Obviously, we have a team of managers here, so they will have their own preferences. So um, you know, they might feel that. Uh, um, you know the, the the momentum or the you know the kind of X. So there's many other things that you look at, um, and, and, and you know I don't want to be too start specific. But let's just take you're taking the auto sector now. Let's just say we, we like the uh, two wheelers. So you've got Bajaj, Aisha, um, XYZ, like TBS, right? Now when you look at them and say, okay, these are going to be the beneficiaries of XYZ, right? Um, now which one should I have? First of all, you'll look at the PEs, you look at the growth, you look at everything else. Then you look at maybe the technicals. Is it overbought? Is it oversold? Is there a lot of FII holdings in there? Would they want, if there's not, would they come in and could they be the extra push to the share price? So you've got a lot of thinking as well of where you want to position yourself. And some will be a little bit 
to do with momentum as well, right? So you so you're not saying that you have to have all the sector because you don't want all the sector. If you think about if you look at any year and the dispersion within the sector, it could be huge, right? You know, it could be That's one stock's up at hundred percent and one's down twenty percent. So you yes. don't want you don't want to be in the wrong stocks either. So, but what we're doing, um, Rahul, is that we're being actively managing this fund. You know, we're not sitting still. You know, even if we think, and I'm going back to, um, let's say we had uh, Pajaj Auto. Let's say the price is a hundred, and we think it's going to go to two hundred over the one year. We know it's not going to go in a straight line unless we're very lucky. We know it's going to go a little bit like this. Now, on the downside, I don't have to own it for that month or two months mm. in the portfolio. I don't need to have that drawdown. So I could say, okay, it's got up, it's done well. Now, maybe I should be looking at an auto parts company. Right? I hear you. So, 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 the, so, so this, I don't need to marry any, any sector or any company. Yeah, and that's where your technicals and momentum and all come into play because they would give you more faster signals as compared to the fundamentals. Yes. So yeah, that makes sense. It's a, so it's a more, it's a lot more active uh, money management than a you know typical buy and hold. And I mind you, a lot of the viewers are typical buy and hold. So for them, this is a diff- at least for them, this is a little different approach. But uh, I think a a lot of people have spoken about this. Uh, and I think if you have the skill and the time to do it, uh, this is not a bad strategy at all, right? It just yeah, requires. No, yeah, yeah. I, I think as I said it's, it's actually managing you correct. So, so as a, as a, so when when you when I so then think about you know the long only part of it, right? Uh, and 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 you can be in the, the banking sector, but the banking sector is going down. So as a as a long term investor, you're gonna you just one question you ask like you should ask yourself the only one question: my opportunity cost of being in this sector versus another sector is what? That's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So you know we had one guest on the investor hour uh, uh, a few months ago, and this is exactly how he explained on when to sell. And you sell when you have a better opportunity. You just move the money. You're not wedded to it. You got a yeah. better opportunity. Just shift the money. Yeah. And if you think like that, the selling decision is a lot more easier than uh, getting wedded to the stock and then trying to break break from it, which can be emotionally pretty painful, right? But I think the other thing here, uh, Rahul, as well in our fund in, in particular, is that we do have strict stop loss limits as well, um, which would mean that uh, you know anywhere between well at fifteen percent. You know, anything that falls from the cost price by 15% is taken out of the portfolio automatically. Oh, wow. Well, that's so, what you Yeah. Yeah. No, so, so, we, so it's a very conservatively run um, uh, hedge fund. We, we always have a minimum hedge of 30% at any given point of time. So even if the markets are going up, we'll still have a minimum hedge of 30%. Because you don't know when market risk is going to come calling on you. Yeah, you get up in the morning and there's a gap down and, you know, yeah. that's when things go wrong. Okay. Uh, your thoughts on portfolio construction, portfolio sizing, etc. cetera. Uh, typically, now I know you, you, you think institutional, you're thinking of fund. Uh, typically, how many stocks would you have? Uh, typically, uh, uh, you know, is concentrated better, diversified better? I, I, you know, I can preempt your answer, but I'd love love for you to still speak on that a little bit 
Yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of guided by obviously how, how we want to run the fund. So it's slightly different than maybe a traditional manager. Um, but on the long side, um, we can take up to, in terms of a single stock exposure, up to about 10% in a single stock. Typically, I'm saying typically, you know, if you've got high conviction, we start off with that 5 6%, right? And then we'll see where, you know, we need to, to kind of uh, to do that. On the short side, or the hedging, because you get squeezed so quickly, and it can be very painful, right? I mean, you'll see, you know, I'm sure you've seen many, many times stocks go up by 20% because of the short squeeze. Right? You don't get that short squeeze on the way up, I can assure you. It's only on the way down, uh, on, the, on the short side. Yeah, yeah. So so there, typically, we wouldn't have more than, you know, 1% to 1.5% exposure to any one given stock because... When it's, we're not like the West in, in, in India. We're an emerging market. You can't say this stock is going up and this stock is going down because, you know, if I did that, well, let me give you an example. In, in, in the kind of, um, you know, when we look to doing pair trade, so you might, you know, like the um, like the uh, steel sector, so you say, okay, I want to have Tata Steel because it's the best and I think sale is not so good. Once that sector takes off, you know, sale is just going to go like that, yeah. right? Because it's high beta, high everything. And you lose, you lose money having got the sector right. And if so, people are short in that, so the, everyone's buying and yeah, you, you yeah. can really be in trouble, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so so that's why, you know, we're, we're using this. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say you give me 100 rupees today, okay? And I fully invest that right this second. Um, I'm going to be 74 long, 76 long and 24 short. Right, automatically, that's the thirty percent. Now, on the short side, are going to be those sectors and companies which we believe, for whatever reason, are going to be laggards. They might rise in a in a in in a, in a market which moves up, and that's why you actively manage it. But once market falls, our experience over the last 15, 16 years is that it sees sectors and companies that fall a lot quicker because there's no fundamental reason to have them anyway at that time. And it gives you that cushion to see what's the risk I need to do. Do I need to increase my longs? Do I need to decrease my longs, increase my shorts? I'll go to cash. Those are the decisions you need to make. Got it. Got it. Uh, we spoke about selling a stock. Uh, do you have any thumb rules for exiting a stock? No, it, it really, because of the, you know, the, 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 the market conditions, um, you know, we always look at... Um, you know, if, if things are going well, go back to the opportunity cost um, of, of holding one stock against the other. Obviously, if you bought something at 6% wages, it's gone to 8 You might say, okay, I want to bring it back down to 6 These decisions are made on a day-to-day basis by each of the fund managers. So, um, so typically, so I ask... Different. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So I don't think there's any one rule um, okay. that, you know, we have. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Uh, uh, Typically, ask people how you're teaching your children about money. I know how old your children are. You told me in 1991 they were one year and on the way. So let's ask about grandchildren. Are, are you spending time with your grandchildren and telling them how they should think about money? Are they listening to you? Not listening to you? What's the so? Story? So my, my two my two children um, um, that live in the UK uh, are not married yet, so I don't have grandchildren. Oh, okay. um, uh-huh. so. You know, I try and I, I hopefully have imbibed in them how to save. Um, not as though they seem to have listened to that part of it. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, what I did for them uh, over the years um, is that every year I used to buy them one of those gold coins you know, that oh, you used to get from HDFC. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, about six, seven years back, I, I decided that you know, they were getting a bit bored of gold and I was not wanting to get any more gold. Um, so I bought I bought bitcoins for them. Oh wow! Now the the important question is when did you buy the bitcoins? <laughs> Fortunately, when the price was a lot lower than it is today. Oh wow! That's a nice call. Yeah. Um, now I have, also have a daughter who's thirteen, um, and uh, what I do with with her is I I I I've um, I've tried to kind of do two things. Well, one is that. You know, I, I do sips for her. So, you know, she sees that. I make sure she sees that statement every month. Um, I don't think she quite understands that part of it. Um, but, you know, when when we go away or when we're away, and I, I say to her, um, uh, so, for example, I, I said to her, which is a lot younger, but reminded her, you know, which is a bit older as well. I said, do you remember what time we went to Disney? She said, yeah, I said, it's fantastic, loved it. I said, do you think people continue going there for, you know, um, blah, 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 blah. She said, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, I said, do you think you'll be taking your, you know, when you're older, do you think you're, so I said, do you think you should buy some shares in Disney then? And that piqued her interest. Well, what, yeah, because she can relate to something now. Yeah. So I'm saying, don't think just so about Disney. Think about, you know, you, you, you know, your mama goes to Nike all the time, right? Should we be buying <laughs> Nike shares, right? So these yeah. are the kind of things that, you know, I try and do it through something that she can relate to rather than it's just a financial, um, yeah. you know, kind of, uh, you know, look, look at the fundamentals, come back. I, I don't think she's ready for that, but I think if she can spot something which is, you know, a trend, uh, and, and I'm looking for her as being a young kid, right? To yeah. tell me these trends going forward that's right that's right i i like I, I really love the way you uh, sort of uh, the fact that you shared that because both the way of teaching is nice and i think uh, storytelling visual and you know the experience matters more at this stage and the fact that you're looking for tips on what they're doing with them uh, what they're thinking is in itself an insight into what could transpire in the future i think uh, a few years ago if someone had followed the youngsters they would have realized the Facebook is dying and the future is Instagram. And now if you're following the youngsters, you'd realize that everyone's gone onto TikTok, not in India's band, but and Instagram's got a challenge. So there are a lot of themes over there. We should spend more time with our kids and try and catch those oh, themes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, whenever I go out and meet, you know, I if I say, you know, do you want to go here? I should say, no, why would I want to have that brand? I, you know, let me yeah. Just take me to uh, this brand, please. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, last few questions. Uh, now you've you of course got amazing global perspective. You you've lived in multiple countries. You've seen how the economies have shaped up, etc. Uh, India has had its moments in ninety one, ninety two. We all believed India's time has come. Uh, it was a it was a good start, but it proved to be a false start or a fleeting start. Uh, we've been through multiple such episodes so my question to you andrew is do you believe what do you think of india today do you believe our time has finally come like we've been thinking since 1991 
And if so, why do you think is different this time? I, 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 I'm loath to say it's different this time. Um, I was never, you know, when I was first going to India back in 97, everyone said, you know, India is like an elephant or, a, you know, one of these tankers that move so slowly and so forth. But I actually don't think it does move that slowly. I think, you know, if, if I think about, what was it, the first trillion dollars of GDP took, what, 60 years for independence and the, and the next two have taken, you know, 10 years or whatever, 15 years. Now, that's a, quite a remarkable achievement, right? And I think I, I also, I, I get frustrated sometimes that, you know, India doesn't showcase itself so well. Um, you know, and, and it's good that, I, I suppose the pandemic happened in, 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 in a good respect for the fact that we've all realized now there's so much to do in India. We don't need to go, you know, to the Alps and we don't need to go to, tabletop mountain we have all of these things right yeah. in india we have palaces we have lots of things that people don't have so um so i think here's what my my overall view is and it's a very simple view is that if i take millennials and gen z or gen z there's 450 million of them it's bigger than china right I know where consumer growth is going to come from in the next decade or more. It's not going to be from, you know, yes, it's going to be from the US. But, you know, consumer spending, I think, in Asia now is probably as big as the whole of Europe in terms of actual money. Mm -hmm. So I actually, is this India's moment? Feels like it, right? It should be. We've got opportunities. You know, what the problems that have been happening in China but my, my experience from South Korea is that once you get to that um, per capita GDP of anything towards 5,000, things just boom. Things just boom. And, and it goes back to the other thing that goes from, from the UK days. Was, and we called it keeping, keeping up with the Joneses, right? So it was when Thatcher came in and she kind of unleashed this, all of this buying of, uh, of council of, you know, government-owned properties or housing. It's a bit like affordable housing here. Now, people started doing that, but when you, when you go to someone's house and you see they've got a nice vase or you see they've got you know, a nice rug or whatever it is, you want it. Yep. You might not want it exactly the same, but you want it. You want to move up. And I think this aspiration uh, in the aspirational India, as well as being a, you know, I can't get over 400 million people, really happy population, is uh, under the age of what, 30. Yeah. It's better than China. So I know between China and India, you have all the growth that you need to have. Yeah. Now, whether it's China or India, I, I, it doesn't really matter to me, but I think when anyone wakes up from the recession that we're facing this year, and they say, you know, where is growth going to come from? It's going to be India. India, and obviously China, but India. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, ultimately the world needs, uh, like if you go back to the basics, land labor capital is required for economic growth. And labor is the problem in most parts of the world. Uh, and it's got aging societies. They got people who permanently left the workforce. I don't know whether they'll come back or not. But uh, India has no such problems right now. We've got plenty of people come 
you know, set up shop and do. And I think, uh, uh, I don't know uh, your thoughts on that. Uh, if you could share this whole push towards manufacturing in India that started in the last couple of years with the PLI, the product uh, production linked incentive scheme or whatever, uh, that seems to be starting to bear some fruit. And uh, so India skipped, India went agri to services and we thought we'd done a great job. But what we missed is the middle where all the jobs are created, which is manufacturing. And maybe we are getting that right now. I think Rahul, we're probably one of the few countries ever to do that, right? Yeah, that's true. We miss out manufacturing. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I, you're, you're, you're spot on, absolutely spot on. That is the opportunity. And, you know, if we don't, uh, if we can open our doors up and grab this opportunity and, you know, for all those companies, even prior to COVID, and we're saying, you know, we need to have um, some of our risk outside of China um, in terms of manufacturing. If we can open our doors, grab the opportunity, but also think about the opportunity ourselves, right? Um, you know, if I just take uh, electronics, um, you know, we're talking about making mobile phones and everything else. I think our electronics industry can really take up, not just domestically, but then become an exporter. It's a huge industry. And I think that's the opportunity. And I think Indian companies will grab it with both hands because they can see the opportunity. Yes, the government's providing some incentive to go there. But if the government don't, I think Indian corporates will anyway. Anyway, okay, that's interesting. Uh, we spoke about reading, global perspective. Uh, how much time do you spend reading? And uh, if you can recommend uh, some stuff to read, maybe magazines, newspapers, blogs, anything? Yeah, problem is, uh, Rahul, there's too much to read, right? I get, uh, <laughs> you know, we get all the brokers reports and uh, strategy reports and global reports. Um, so I, I, I must admit, I do less read. Actually, I probably do no reading at all in terms of, uh, you know, kind of economic books. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, you kind of, you know, not normal kind of uh, research reading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think I think what's important to me, um, apart from just reading brokers' reports, is, is actually finding out exactly what's happening. And there's nothing better than that when I'm phoning up people that you know and trust and say, you know, how's it going in the UK? Anything happening? Um, you know, can, how, how's your gas price? What's been happening there? You know, get the reality of what's happening, not just this is what you read, this is what you see. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I, I saw some numbers come out, uh, you know, before lunch. Uh, I think it was from one of the uh, supermarket stores in the UK. They've, they've actually done well. So people are still spending. And, you know, we're all this dire thinking that we're talking about. It's not happening yeah. Yeah. to the That's, way we should be we're thinking. Yeah, so, pick up the phone and talk. Yeah. yeah. No, I, not, I mean, if I could go to the UK, then I'd go and do that. So, yeah. um, you know, it's small things that you do that, you, you know, I did, which, which, uh, which gave me an idea was there was talk in the UK um, when the World Cup football was on, right? that people would stay at home because it'd be expensive to go to the pub and watch football. Mm -hmm. So I got my spies out and said, Is, are the pubs full or not full? Because that would tell you people are really spent. Every pub was full. Oh, wow. No one wanted to be yeah. home. Yeah. yeah. Nothing, there's nothing like 
feet on the street research i i, I think so okay. okay my final question to you uh what is i'm literally reading it out now what is the one idea you would leave for the for our viewers to think about i i i'm going to leave uh, slightly two ideas I, 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 and this is what I, i really want to kind of emphasize when i think about investments not just in the fund or individual companies and so forth um so there's there's two parts to it one is um you know that that old saying right it's it's not um it's not about timing the market it's time in the market right my problem with the time in the market part of it is that this at some point you'll get back to where you were if the market falls but the opportunity cost you missing other assets is too high right yeah and and so is the allocation of your assets not necessarily so if you just say you want to put 50% in in equities fine please do it um but you know look at that weightage should it be a little bit higher should it be lower um year after year or whatever basis of time you want to because that will be important to making money going forward um because everyone will say you know i don't think if you've been in the lift the last two years you haven't made money right if you bought two years ago probably haven't made any money right or very little Mm-hmm. but you would have been through this right yeah but if you would have bought housing you would have made some money that's right so it goes back to opportunity cost and the second thing i would say is that you know it's sometimes it's the simple things you need to think about rather than if, if something's complicated and you can't understand it uh, and i've looked through many balance sheets and, and cash flows and not understood anything and but i understand it and i i don't want to be in it and it's sometimes a simple um everyday um stuff you know you paint your house which 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 brand did you use and why do all your friends use the same paint why and, <clears throat> and you know that's you know it's sometimes staring you in the face of of why where there's a good company um then it's all about just holding on to it yep and if i may add to that talk to your kids about brands <laughs> to find the future winners <laughs> yes yes that was my, actually my daughter was just phoning so i will remind her that she needs to come up with some ideas now yeah wonderful andrew thank you very much for your time been very uh, uh, insightful very thought provoking and thank you for leaving us with all these wonderful ideas no rahul it's been an absolute pleasure i i you know it's uh, you know it's enjoyable I mean, taking me back so far as well um, to my <laughs> horse racing, right? uh, my horse think. racing days. Yeah, but, uh, but thank you very much. It was uh, it was, it was an absolute delight. Thank you. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I am very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster dot com. that's i n f o at equitymaster.com thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the investor hour this was a mint production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast